for those who don't know me, I'm Aaron. Uh, I'm one of our community group leaders um, here. I'm very thankful to be able to uh, continue on in our study of John with, uh, with you all by looking at John 18, verses 15 through 27. So picking up right where we left off last week. And so as you're turning there in your Bible or uh, loading it up on your app, um, however you're choosing to engage with the text, um, I want you to think about one thing, which is uh, a question. What should be one of the most reassuring truths that Christians believe? I'm not going to let you sit too long because the answer is actually one that we've been talking about repeatedly through our study of John, and it's that God is in control. There are few truths that should comfort us more than this one. To know that we are not meandering listlessly through our lives and through the universe that is no small thing. That what we experience is not random or purposeless, but actually serves a greater end. To know that God is working all things together for good for those who love him according to his purposes. Now, what is one of the truths that Christians also struggle most to believe? It's the same one. God is in control. That very same truth that should reassure us is also one that we wrestle with on a very practical level every single day. When we look at the news, for example, and it inundates us with stories of war and strife and discord, it tempts us to be afraid. When stories of scandals of all sorts and kind reach us, we're encouraged to embrace cynicism. And that fear and that cynicism, they shape how we look at God. And they can cause us to doubt that he is really in control of anything. And yet, the Bible repeatedly tells us that God is in control of all things, that he knows what he is doing. And as John's gospel has shown us time and again, that includes Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. And so if Jesus really is who he said he is, that if he is God-made man, as has been repeatedly described throughout this gospel, we need to know that he is in control of all things. And for those of us who were here last week or listened to the message online, Dustin emphasized this point as he reminded us that Jesus was and is in control of his situation including in the moment of his arrest in the garden. And his control over his situation and of our situation as well continues to be the major theme at the foundation of everything else that we're going to look at over the next several chapters of this book as we reach its conclusion through Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so as we look at our passage tonight, we're going to see that as we look specifically at three different characters that, that are presented in this very short passage. 
we're going to see one who is a failure. We're going to see one who is a fraud. And we're going to see one who is faith. And so, first of all, there is the failure. And so we're going to look at John 18, verses uh, verses 15 through 18. We're going to do a little bit of bouncing around um, in the passage uh, today. Um, what John has done in structuring this is he's um, used Peter, our failure, our blessed failure, because he's so much like us, and we're so much like him. But he's used his his story, his example as a bookend for what's going to happen in the middle, this interaction between Jesus and, the, and Annas, the, the high priest. And so as we look at Peter, there is a sense in which you can think about his journey throughout the gospel in three parts. So the first part of this, sto- this journey that he's in, which takes us from his first appearance in in chapter 1, verse 40, really right up until chapter 18, verses 10 and 11. Uh, For for perhaps lack of a better word, you could almost call this the development of his hubris, his pride, his his arrogance. Um, Because throughout those first 18 chapters, as he genuinely and earnestly pursues Jesus, we also see him meandering between these moments of insight and clarity, these times when he really seems to be getting it, and this outright bravado, this chest-thumping nonsense that, um, you know, a great example of which is in chapter 13, verse 37, when after Jesus said that he was going where none of his disciples could follow, Peter said, said to Jesus, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And we know what Jesus said to him after that. He said, you're going to lay, you're going to follow me. You're going to lay down my life for me. You're going to deny me three times before, before the night is through. And then there's what we saw happen in 18, uh, in chapter 18, just last week, when Jesus is about to be arrested, when Jesus has already made it clear That this mob of soldiers led by Judas cannot do anything except for what he allows them to do. Peter goes and tries to kill one of the high priest's servants. A man named Malchus. And he cuts off his ear. And then he gets rebuked for, for, for his bravery in that moment by Jesus. And that's where his hubris reached its apex. its And really its breaking point. And so later jumping ahead in the third part of his story... That's what is what we see after the resurrection in John 21 as he returned to his role as a fisherman, only for Jesus to come and join him for, for breakfast and then recommission him for ministry. And that leaves, and, and so that part of the story, we might call his, his humbling, because after that moment, the, the Peter that we see in the rest of the Bible, although certainly not perfect, And what we know of him from the rest of history, also not perfect because he's a human being, is a very different man than the one we see in the first 18 chapters of this book. He's one who is is significantly less prone to passionately flying off the handle or sticking his foot in his mouth. So if hubris was the first part of his story and and 
And humility was the, was the, the third, or humbling was the third. What's the second? Well, that's what we're going to see today um, in a part of that story that we might call his humiliation. As Peter's world came crashing down around him. And so listen to verse 15. Listen, listen to this starting at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple follow, followed them, that is, Jesus and the soldiers, as they, as they brought Jesus to Annas. Now, the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, and he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter was left standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, who was acquainted with the high priest, came out and spoke to the slave girl who watched the door and brought Peter inside. And the girl who was the, was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? And he replied, I'm not. Now, the slaves and the guards were standing around a charcoal fire that they had made, warming themselves because it was cold. And Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. So as we get into this text, there's a question that, that immediately comes up for, for those who um, are cu always curious about little details. We see Peter come in, follow Jesus along with these soldiers, and it says that he's following along with another disciple or this other disciple. So who is that? Well, throughout history, there have been really two primary arguments um, that go like this. It was either John himself or it was not John. That's about it. That's about as far as people have gotten. Now, traditionally, John was the favored answer and still is the favored answer. And that, the, the choice there to be referred to more discreetly some, is one of those context clues. Because this is something that he typically did whenever he would insert himself into the narrative. He rarely ever used his actual name. He would always call himself um, something like the beloved disciple, for example. <laughs> um, which, I mean, that's a choice. I mean, I might just use my name, but that's me. Uh, <laughs> but we also know that this, this other disciple is, is, has this close association with Peter. And John is very closely associated with Peter. He, if, if Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, John was his left. Um, and we also know that, that whoever this disciple was, was already widely known as one of Jesus' disciples. And John, of course, had been traveling around, doing all the things that, that Jesus commanded him to do, went out, went out on ministry, uh, ministry trips um, to announce the good news of the coming kingdom, all of these kinds of things. It was hard for people to not know who Jesus was, who John was. Now, the, John, the not John argument tends to favor either someone who's entirely unknown um, or suggests someone like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. And, their main and the main reason for this seems to be an assumption that John, having been a fisherman, would not have had interaction with the high priest or his associates, let alone be familiar enough to him that he would be welcomed into the courtyard without question. But that seems to be more of a reading in of Greek culture and Western culture along with it, with um, very 
hard barriers between different, um, di- different uh, classes or roles in society. Uh, because, yeah, Jesus, uh, John was a fisherman. His dad was a fisherman. But his father also seemed to be a man of some, some means. He, was well, he did well enough in his role to have some hired help who weren't just Peter and Andrew. So having a connection between John and the high priest's house may not have actually been all that far-fetched. But whatever the case, this other disciple gets into the courtyard and he goes and he goes and gets Peter in because Peter doesn't have access on his own. And they go so that they can see what's going to happen to Jesus. And when this doorkeeper speaks to Peter, she says to him, you're not one of this, this man's disciples too, are you? Now, this isn't so much of a question as it is a statement of irritation or annoyance or even potentially cynicism. She, she can't believe that another one of this Jesus' followers is being allowed in. Bad enough that one of them is in here, but another? Which, again, brings us back to Peter. This hasn't been a good night for him. He's in a place where he clearly doesn't belong. He's picking up on the doorkeeper's irritation. He's slow on the, slow on the uptake on some things, but this he, he got right away. The events of that night so far were so fresh in his memory as well. And he had to have been thinking, okay, I'm here. I don't belong here. What if someone recognized me from the garden? What if someone recognized me as the guy with the sword? What's going to happen? And then there had to have been all of the questions that must have been going through his mind about Jesus himself. Because remember, he didn't have a category truly for a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who would die, despite the fact that Jesus had been telling them about this for ages, that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be killed, and that he would rise again. And for Jesus to, why would, so why would Jesus stop Peter from protecting him, he had to wonder. Why was Jesus letting himself be taken? Jesus was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited king, the rescuer of God's people. So how could all of this be part of God's plan? Peter was afraid. And in his fear, his faith was reeling. And so it's no wonder that when he's asked if he's one of Jesus' disciples, or scoffed at as one of his disciples, that he would choose that moment to distance himself, saying, I'm not. And, uh, and this is the thing that is, that is, is fascinating here. D.A. Carson, who is a very, very wise Bible teacher, uh, theologian, wrote in his commentary on this, that while Peter may have viewed this first instance of self-distancing from the master as a right of admission to the courtyard. Basically, he, he may have done this just to get in and as a, with that angle of self-protection in there. 
But, Carson said, once performed, it was easy to repeat with rising vehemence. And that's actually what we see happen as the night progresses. Because jumping, in, jumping ahead in the text, we see in ver- this in verse 25. So meanwhile, meanwhile, indicating what we're going to get to in a, in a couple of minutes, the interaction between Annas and Jesus. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing in the courtyard, warming himself. And they, and they said to him, aren't you one of his disciples too? And he denied it again. I am not. So while Peter was warming himself, the servants and the guards, they were all talking amongst themselves, but they're also checking out this guy who's there with him. And so they asked that same question that the doorkeeper did in the same tone that she did in verse 17. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And then again, Peter denied it. And then we get to verse 26. One of the high priest slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the the orchard with him? And then Peter denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. So this time when he's asked the question, it's not just a servant who's assuming he's one of the disciples because he came in with the unnamed other one. This time, it was a relative of Malchus who actually recognized Peter, someone who was actually in the garden when Peter pulled out his sword, who saw everything go down. And Peter once again denied that he knew Jesus And the moment those words birthed out of his fear for what was going to happen, I am not, came out of his mouth, a rooster crowed. Just as Jesus had said would happen back when he had so confidently said that he would never fall away, even if everyone else did. And so for all of his bravado, In the first 18 chapters, Peter was was all talk. In the moment that it mattered, his confidence left him, and he failed. And Peter's failure should be a sobering reminder for us, because we are all constantly faced with very real challenges to our faith. Sometimes those challenges are obvious. Other times, they're they're far more subtle. And we always feel this push and pull as we move about in the world, this temptation to compromise ourselves, either by capitulating to things that we know we shouldn't, by denying Jesus in the moment because it seems easier to go along, to get along on matters that we know that we can't or shouldn't. But we also might deny him and compromise ourselves by overcompensating with outsized responses to those very same challenges, offering mockery, scorn, and slander to peop, um, against people who are far from Jesus. Joining Peter, essentially, as he recklessly swung about his sword. And so in those moments when we're tempted one way or another, we need to stop. We need to examine ourselves. We need to take a deep breath and ask what it is that we're afraid of. What do our temptations reveal about what has a hold on our hearts? Because that's the thing that we need to understand 
fear is what drives us to shrink back from Jesus or to overcompensate in the name of taking a bold stance for him. Fear pushes us toward compromise in either direction. But through the gospel, as people made new by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so when we're tempted toward either kind of compromise, either to shrink away from Jesus and deny him or to overcompensate and be cruel toward people who disagree with, with him and us, the best thing that we can do, the, the thing that we actually must do is stop. To take stock of what's going on inside us, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to see the truth, to remember that, yes, Jesus is in complete control the way that he says he is, and to respond in the way that most honors him. But here's the truth. We all have moments that, can, that come to mind where we know that we've failed, just like Peter did, where we've shrunk back when we should have stood firm, where we've overreacted when we should have been more measured. And it's tempting to stew on those failures and to define ourselves as we condemn ourselves in them. To think that God will be done with us because of how we've failed. But that's where Peter's story is good news for us. Because Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. He was, again, the one who told Peter that it was going to happen. And even when Peter failed, Jesus was still in control. And we have the good news that failure wasn't the end for Peter. His humiliation in his failure transformed his hubris into humility. And Jesus restored him and called him to feed his sheep. And so Peter's failure offers hope for all who are heavy laden with the guilt of their own failure. And so if that's you right now, just know this, there's grace for you in that. Turn to Jesus with that. Bring that to him because he will restore you. He will comfort you. And so if Peter is the failure, there's another character that we need to see in this passage, and that is the fraud. And that is Annas. And so we're going we're gonna to look just at one verse right now, um, but we're going to reference back to some, some other ones here. So look at verse 19. While this was happening, that this being Peter's first denial, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So while Peter was denying being a disciple of Jesus, Annas was busy questioning Jesus. And in this verse, he's called specifically the high priest. But elsewhere, including just a couple of verses from now in verse 24, someone else is called the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. So what's going on here? Which one of them is the high priest? 
And what business does Annas have questioning Jesus at all, especially if he's not the high priest? So a quick bit of background kind of helps to clear this up because Annas was appointed by the governor uh, Quirinius as the high priest of the Jewish people around the year 86. And he served in that role until about AD 15, when he was removed by Valerius Gratus, who was the immediate uh, predecessor to Pontius Pilate as governor over the region. And several of his family members then held the role of high priest, including Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law and who was the official high priest at that time. Yet despite having been removed from office, Annas continued to exert not mere influence, but actual power. Calling him the high priest was no formality or honorific like continuing to call a former president by the title after after he leaves office. Annas acted as the authority behind the authority of his successors, the real source of power for them. And so his being involved in the trial against Jesus, a trial that had nothing to do with anything that Jesus actually did or said, was no surprise. Because despite Caiaphas presiding over the trial, Annas was the one holding court, attempting to exercise power over Jesus that he didn't have. And that's what makes him a fraud. As the high priest, Annas was to serve as a mediator between God and humanity for the, for the Jewish people to uphold and fulfill the ceremonial law of God, representing God's people before God in the temple. And yet, as I learned more about him while studying this passage um, over, over the last few days, Annas really seems more like a mob boss than he does a mediator because he was all about maintaining power and control for himself. And Jesus was a threat to that and someone that he had to eliminate. And so if fear is often the root of our failures, cynicism is often at the heart of a fraud's motivation. And just as any of us can give in to fear. All of us can be tempted towards cynicism as well. And where fear tempts us to worry that God is not in control, cynicism tempts us to take matters into our own hands and say, you know what? I don't need to worry about if God is in control because I'll do it myself. It can take good desires and twist them into things that are ugly and evil. Cynicism is what causes us to justify any means, so long as they lead to whatever end we desire. Cynicism is what lets us turn a blind eye to cutting corners for the sake of expediency and to start to believe that when we're asked to choose between two evils, that choosing neither is not an option. Forgetting that to choose one is still to choose evil. It doesn't matter what area of life we're talking about either. We can be, whether we're dealing with work or society, family, or even in the church, cynicism can creep in. And it is a powerful, powerful drug. It twists 
everything that we see. And we might, and it does it to such a degree that we might use all the right language. We might maintain an outward appearance. But that cynicism will turn us into spiritual frauds. And so how do we protect ourselves from that? Well, first of all, we need to examine ourselves. I mean, especially when we're considering or actively pursuing any kind of position of influence or authority. We want to be praying that the Lord would purify our motives um, and that he would redirect us if we're not pursuing, uh, pursuing influence or authority from the right spirit. We need him to help us be appropriately self-aware, to know the sins that we are tempted toward, and to surround us with people who can keep us pointed in the right direction. Second, we should also be discerning of the messages that we hear, especially to promises that are being made, that are being made in, those, in those messages. And we should have a sanctified sort of skepticism, one that doesn't expect perfection of anyone, but seeks the Lord's help to have tempered expectations of any human being and any solution that a human being offers. To know that Jesus is in complete control over this world and that no human plan is ever going to bring about what only he And so we've seen one character in this story, Peter, who is a failure. We've seen another, Annas, who's a fraud. But there's one more to explore, the one who's faithful. And that, of course, is Jesus. So take a look at verse 20. Jesus replied, I've spoken publicly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the, Jew- in, in the temple courts where all the Jewish people assemble together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said. They know what I said. And when Jesus had said this, one of the high priest's officers who stood nearby struck him on the face and said, is that the way that you answer the high priest? And Jesus replied, If I've said something wrong, confirm what's wrong. But if I've spoken correctly, why strike me? And then Annas sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. So just as Jesus was unsurprised by Peter's failure, and he was also also unfazed by Annas' posturing, he knew that this trial was not rooted in a deep desire for faithful worship, despite the theological nature of the questions that he was being asked, which, according to the other Gospels, all had to do with his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God and true King of Israel. This trial was a sham, one that was potentially even illegal based on the practices of the time, where it was more common to question witnesses than to interrogate a defendant. But notice a couple of things. In Jesus' answer to Annas, he said, I've spoken publicly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple courts where all the Jewish people assemble together, and I have said nothing in secret. So back in verse 19, Annas was questioning Jesus about both of his followers and his teaching. 
But here, Jesus entirely sidesteps addressing his disciples at all and only focuses on his teaching. And in this, we see him once again being faithful to protect his followers, just as he did in verse 8 when he told the soldiers to let his disciples go free. Jesus was being faithful to them even in this moment because he was faithful, as verse 9 says, to fulfill the word that he had spoken, I have not lost a single one of those whom you gave me. Jesus wasn't afraid of Annas, whatever power Annas seemed to have. And despite his circumstances, despite being tied up, Jesus was in complete control of this situation. And he showed that control in how he spoke about his teaching. That they already knew what he taught. They knew that he taught about the coming of the Lord's kingdom and had called everyone to repent for it was at hand. That the kingdom was not like any kingdom of the world, one not created and ruled the way that human kingdoms are. He had explained what it meant to be faithful to the Lord and his commands, to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbors as yourselves, to love one another because this is how we'll be known as his disciples, to honor earthly authorities while also being loyal to God as our true king. All of this Jesus taught publicly. He taught it in the synagogues. He taught it in the temple. And if, if, there, if he was ever advocating insurrection against Rome, which was a common problem among many of the, many of the false disciples or um, messiahs that, that were showing up around the time, or that he intended to usurp any human authority, everyone would have already known and there would have been plenty of opportunities to arrest him. And yet they didn't because there was nothing to arrest him for. We see elsewhere in John's gospel that the entire reason that the, that the religious establishment was trying to kill Jesus was because he kept saying he was God. That's the whole reason. And then Jesus took things a step farther in verse 21, saying, Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said. They know what I said. And so Jesus here is openly challenging the legitimacy of these proceedings. Why are they questioning him at all? If there was any legitimate charge to be made, it should be coming through actual witnesses, not questioning the defendant. And in a move that only further proved the illegality of the show trial here, the high priest's officer struck Jesus. Not because Jesus had said anything offensive to the, to the high priest. This wasn't like when Paul, for example, called the high priest a whitewashed wall when he was on trial. He said nothing wrong at all. But this, but this officer struck him and said, is that the way you answer the high priest? As if daring Jesus to respond in kind. And so as this goes on, this trial devolves from not merely being a sham, but into a complete circus. It's just a mess. Everyone was out of control in this except for Jesus. Because Jesus was faithful to his calling. 
He was faithful to his people, and he would not be moved. And rather than repay evil for evil, Jesus stood his ground the way that we've seen him since the mob came for him in the garden. And he said, if I have said something wrong, confirm what is wrong. But if I spoke correctly, why strike me? In other words, prove it. That was his entire defense. Jesus is showing us what faithfulness looks like in practice, what it means to have power under control, to be in complete control of his situation. He isn't going to put up with their nonsense, but he isn't going to stop them either because he knows that it has a purpose. Jesus knew what he was there to do, to rescue his people from sin and death by going to the cross by dying for their sins and being raised to life on the third day. And he was going to see that through. And, and seeing that, all of this was going on, and all of it was going nowhere, Anna sent him, still tied up, to Caiaphas, the high priest. So what do we do with this? Well, when we're tempted toward fear and cynicism, when we begin to doubt that God is really in control, we're called to respond in faith in the same way that Jesus demonstrated. Now, we're not Jesus, obviously, but we are empowered to live in the same kind of faithfulness and fearlessness that he displays through the Spirit. So whenever we are confronted with real problems in the world, when fear tempts us to doubt God, and when cynicism draws us toward taking authority from God, we have a choice, and it's to respond like Christians. Not, it's, it's, it's as simple as that, to, to be who we are in Jesus. And so that means that we take those fears and those temptations, we take them to God. We're, we can be honest about those things, and we can ask for his help in them, and we need to ask for his help in them, because here's the thing. We don't, we're not playing the same game that the world is, so we don't play by its rules. We, if we are followers of Jesus, we are called ambassadors for Christ's, Christ, representatives of his kingdom in any and every situation. And so we act in that spirit and empowered by his spirit, not giving way to fear and failure, not allowing cynicism to capture our hearts, but in faith that Jesus really is in complete control as he says he is, and that he really is working out all things together for good for those who love God according to his purposes. So as we transition and continue our worship time together, as we prepare to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, taking communion together to remember the shed blood and broken body of Jesus for us while we await his return, take some time and think about where is it that you're tempted toward? Where are you tempted towards cynicism? Where do you need help from the Lord tonight in this moment? Bring those things to him. 
Because he will help. He will give us the strength that we need. He will empower us to be faithful to him and to live in that truth that he is in control. Let's play. Pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is in control over all things, the way that he says he is. Thank you that we see him model that in Scripture. We see him demonstrated again and again and again in these passages that, uh, that we've already looked at, and we're going to continue to see him do it again as he goes through the rest of his false trials and as he goes to the cross and as he dies there for us. Father, help us to not give in to fear when we are tempted by it, but to turn to you with it. Help us to not become cynical when things don't seem to be going the way that they should or that we think we should or think they should. But help us to trust that you know better than we do and to be patient and to live trusting that, that you are good, you are in control, and that you are working things for all, for all your purposes and for the 